This is a Federal News Network podcast. Congress gave the Department of Homeland Security the authority to create its own cybersecurity personnel system. That was back in 2014. More than six years later, the new cyber talent management system is finally live and accepting applications. CTMS lets the department recruit, hire, pay, and promote cybersecurity talent in a completely different way from the traditional general schedule. Angela Bailey is the DHS Chief Human Capital Officer. Travis Hoadley is Director of Innovation for CTMS. And Aaron Hayes is the CTMS Director of Operations. They tell Federal News Network's Nicola Grisco why it took so long to develop the system. You hear Bailey first. I think one of the key points here is that true civil service reform to do it right takes time. If you think about it, what we did is we took the Classification Act of 1923, which the last time it was amended was like 1949. And then we started asking ourselves all these really tough questions, which I think really helped us think through how we could make something better or put something in place that went a long way to making this happen. So we we chose not to take what I will say, the very simple step of just adding a grade on to the end of the GS schedule, right? We took the bold, brave step of completely walking away from the OPM's classification, OPM's qualifications, the general schedule, the way that we do pay, everything. We walked away from all of that and we said, you know, Congress gave us a blank sheet of paper. Why don't we, instead of dinking around the edges. Why don't we take that blank sheet of paper and why don't we from scratch actually build something that's going to last not just for today, but way, way into the future. And so that's what honestly took so long is that we just, I call it peeling back the onion. We just kept peeling it away. And, you know, at the end of the day, you say, what? I had no idea that this impacted this. And if I pull this thread, then this happens. And so all of that is what Travis and and the team and, and Aaron, that they really had to do in order to make this the success that it is today. Travis, probably more so than anybody can explain this even a little bit better. I think where I would sort of start is oftentimes in the federal space, especially in the HR community, we talk about statutory authority that agencies have, right? And it's a big accomplishment sometimes to work with Congress to get legislation that gives your agency more authority. The reality is that step in some cases is like signing up to run a marathon, right? And this project is a marathon type project in that if you want to actually meaningfully make change in the way that we think about describing work, about hiring people, how we pay them, especially in a space that's moving as fast as cybersecurity, you're signing yourself up for quite a bit of work to untangle the way that we currently employ people across most federal agencies, which really wasn't designed for work like that. It was designed for more predictable clerical work um, in the middle of the 20th century and to really update everything from what it means to describe a job to say what the major duties a person will perform for an agency to taking into consideration that, you know, cybersecurity especially is a space where we're not the only employer, where there's a lot of employers in the private sector, what they're doing to attract talent, how they're paying that talent is moving at a pace that was really unimaginable when some of the ways that we designed how we do HR today at most agencies were thought of in the middle of the 20th century, right? So on this project, we took from the beginning, from the beginning of that marathon, the challenge of not shying away from looking at difficult issues about federal HR, about engaging with experts that, to be frank, are fairly rare. So it takes expertise in industrial and organizational psychology, 
in federal employment law and sort of the history of the civil service to be able to undertake something like this. And we worked diligently to secure that type of expertise, to put the right sort of brains in the room to come up with ideas and then do what's really the hardest step, which is taking ideas and turning them into actual tangible processes that we can use to change the way we do business. I would say one thing that I think makes this project somewhat unique is that we were very diligent about looking at all of the studies of the civil service and all the recommendations about how to update things, including for technology and cybersecurity that have been done in the last several decades. The real challenge was then taking those ideas and turning them into action, right? So it's one thing to say it's, it's time to update the classification system. It's another thing to actually do it. Those are great points. Erin, anything that you might want to add? Yeah, just one thing. And Angie always laughs at me when I say this. One of her first challenges as we were going down this path was that if we led with an interchange agreement, that we were not down the right path. How's that for saying it a different way? I think um, I said you, you would have failed. We would have failed. <laughs> if, she basically told us that if we led with an interchange agreement, we would have failed. And that I think it gave us something, a starting point was we don't want to lead with an interchange agreement because when you look at all of the other alternative personnel systems, they all have an interchange or many of them have an interchange agreement back with the competitive service, with the general schedule. And we really didn't want that. And I think that really gave us a starting point for just where our, where to take off from, from there. And for our listeners, can you remind us what you mean by an interchange agreement specifically in this context? What it means is that most agencies will get, as Travis said, they'll go get statutory authority to like have as much flexibility as possible. And then they'll turn around and they'll box themselves in so that OPM will give them what's called an interchange agreement, which means going from whatever specialized alternative personnel system that they've built, that they've built enough of the Title V rules into it, that it allows them to be able to then turn around and compete in the competitive service. So for example, TSA has an interchange agreement because of the way that they apply veterans preference, because of the way that they stick to the general schedule, et cetera. And so as Aaron said, my basic rule of thumb was if you do that, if we do that, right, then we will fail because because Congress gave us a blank sheet of paper. We created something that I think will stand on its own merit and won't people won't feel like they need a lifeline back to the competitive service. I gotcha. Okay. So Angie mentioned that as you set out to begin this work, looking at maybe pay, for example, unraveled tons of other complexities that you had to solve as well. Can you give me an example or two of some specific instances where that happened? Yeah, I can give one example. So we often think of, or, or people will portray the cybersecurity recruiting and retention challenge as a compensation challenge in government, right? One of the things that we found that sort of complicates that or tells a more accurate story is that in many cases, our problems aren't compensation itself. It's how compensation is hooked to other things. So it's the way that we define jobs and define them at a particular grade level. It's also the rules that we have, like time and grade, that restrict people's progression. So let's say, for example, you're able to really describe one of our most technical cybersecurity jobs well using the general schedule classification standards, which in and of itself is a challenging thing to do. Sometimes once that job is described and you're able to hire someone into it, they're still sort of subject to all these rules that we have about how quickly you can move through a federal career that sort of don't acknowledge that this space moves really fast. Some people, your top 
performers especially, waiting 52 weeks to provide them with a salary increase maybe doesn't make sense, right? Or definitely doesn't make sense in the general schedule step and grade way that we do it for other occupations. So that's one example of, while it looks like a compensation issue on the surface, there's often other things that are embedded there and connected, right? And there's very few things in Title V and in traditional federal HR that aren't connected to something else. When you start to make changes to the hiring process, you're affecting other things for folks. When you start to change things about how people progress through their careers, it has ripple effects for just about everything, whether you're talking about people's compensation for retirement or their eligibility for retirement or the way that their benefits are calculated, the way that their leave works. I could talk to you for two weeks about how complicated leave is in the federal space. Pretty dang complicated. <laughs> Any other examples that come to mind? I mean, that was a pretty good summary, I think, of perhaps how just pay unraveled almost everything that you had to design with this new system. But was there anything else, even just like a tiny little specific thing that no one ever would have thought, you know, if they were just trying to design their own pay and personnel system? This is sort of a different take on that issue, but it's very difficult to stay within the, the lane of HR when you're doing an innovation project like this. And I think this is probably common in other federal administrative spaces too. While on the surface, this is a project about doing HR business differently, recruiting and retaining people better, very quickly, you start to touch other aspects of government business. So as a team, we had to be pretty adept at how procurement works, right? How do you procure some of these complicated service contracts that it takes to do this type of work, including in some cases, contracts that aren't very common for federal agencies to partner with that type of vendor or to search for those types of services, right? Similarly, you get pretty closely involved with information technology issues. There's very little that we do in government today that doesn't involve information technology, which starts to involve privacy, security, all these different areas that you have to have more than a working level understanding of to partner with your other folks across your agency to be effective and to design something that will actually work for your managers, your candidates, et cetera. I was just thinking of a real concrete example as well, NFC codes. So you can build the fanciest system in the whole world, right? But you've got, you've got a, you know, the National Finance Center for our payroll. It's working on 20th century codes that are tied to the general schedule. So it's like, oh my God, how do we how do we translate everything that we just built and how do we still get people paid in a system that's not even anywhere close to being designed for what we just built? So I got to tell you, the years, not months, years to get the right codes so that we could actually implement this thing as Travis, tra not Travis, but Aaron, I saw Aaron holding to her head. Like it, it's mind blowing. That's probably one of the those tiny mind blowing things. It's not just the code; it's how to describe it so that it actually operates in a way so that we can pay somebody the way we want to do it. It's just writing the requirements and then being able to take those requirements and then turn it into the actual code, COBOL so that the systems function. I mean, it's just, it's, it does this, but it doesn't do this. I'm working on, on a requirement right now for NFC so that they understand what this code, how it will operate, what it does do and what it doesn't do so that they can write the statements in programming language so that it functions. 
it's a really great example. And like, there's, there's some irony embedded there, right? And that we're trying to hire 21st century cybersecurity folks, including people who are familiar with the most modern coding languages that there are. But in order to do that, we have to modify lines of COBOL code in a mainframe from, you know, originally designed in the late 60s so that their paycheck can be accurate. Stepping back a little bit, and as you started this process, you know, you explained, I think, pretty well the the goal of CTMS, what you wanted to achieve. But were there more specific aspects of the new talent management system that you really wanted to make sure were embedded in it, whether it's you know, some of the performance aspects or the ability to bring people in from other sectors or, or anything like that? One was to your point about recruiting. Like what we didn't want is a USA jobs post and pray kind of thing. We wanted to be able to have the ability to actually tap into, you know, whether it's Black Hat Conference or Hackers Anonymous or whatever the case may be, we really wanted our ability to Again, go to those kinds of organizations and associations, create longstanding relationships with them to include the historically or the MSIs, the minority serving institutes, and really be able to go after, you know, we talk about all segments of society, but rarely can you get at all segments of society because of all the rules. And so what we did is we said, let's figure out a way not to not to tie our hands. Let's figure out how do we create this system with such flexibility that we can establish these relationships and we can actually go after the person who's 18 years old, but just won a national hackathon. You know, just as much as qualifying is the fact that they might have gone to a community college or or to a major university. So those were some key principles, as well as to your point about performance, how do we make sure it's a continuous feedback? How do we make sure that we really do tie, you're taking the opportunities to learn and grow to actually being able to compensate you for that? Because today it's really not tied to that. It's tied strictly, almost strictly to a performance plan. So some of the things that are incorporated in an SES performance plan or some of the thing or perf- way of doing performance appraisal, we also incorporated into this as well. So those are just two quick little examples of some of the things that we set out saying to ourselves, how do we make sure that the qualification isn't just based on an education? And Erin, anything to add here? I was just going to reinforce the, it's, it's the homegrown experience. It's not always a college degree or a community college. A lot of cybersecurity, the talent, it's homegrown. They've got a box and they're working on some of these skills and figuring out how to do all of this at home. And oftentimes in the general schedule, our emphasis is on a degree or it's on the skills that we've learned in the workplace or through certifications or other training programs, whereas this one, I think, is a little bit different. What I would add to that, too, is that it involves sort of recognizing, and I think we've done this from the beginning of the project, that jobs don't exist the same way they maybe did 50, 75 years ago, and that they are not always as predictable. They tend to shift over time. The responsibilities that you think you have when you start a job grow and change based on your skills, on the skills of the team that you work on, et cetera. A lot of current federal HR or traditional federal HR doesn't operate in that world where there's as much flexibility and recognition of that things change over time and that mission requirements change and that your best employees are able to adapt to that change and still be successful. So I think when it came to designing CTMS, we took on the challenge of finding a way to be fair, structured, 
but also to accommodate that adaptability that's just natural part of jobs that people have today. And what that partly means too is that, you know, not anchoring around things like four-year degrees, even though that may be convenient from making a hiring process that allows you to review applicants pretty quickly, it doesn't provide you with the folks that can work in the environment that you have and that can adapt to the challenges they're going to face, right? So that meant in our case for that specific challenge, designing a process that would allow people to demonstrate the skills we do need, which include adaptability, right? And that requires a little bit of investment, a little bit of time, but we think we've come up with an alternative process that while it takes some effort on the part of applicants, all of that effort is meaningful. It's about them displaying real skills that are gonna be relevant to their work at DHS. It's not about submitting paperwork that we might be used to them traditionally submitting. Yeah, I noticed in in going through some of the materials that you all have put out on CTMS, there was a pretty detailed description of the different assessments that applicants would have to go through, you know, depending on what kind of job they were interested in applying for. Any other comments on the assessment piece or maybe goals that you wanted to achieve there? What we had heard from managers so often is people look good on paper and they interview well. But then whenever we give them the job, you know, and they sit down, it's like they can't really do their job. And so managers have been frustrated with that for years. And so so this was built for and by DHS. Now, while we had contractors who certainly helped us do things, the amount of effort that was put in by our subject matter experts within CISA and the CIO community can't really be underscored enough. So by having them say, these are the kinds of skills and attributes and competencies. This is what we really need for people to be able to do the job, not write about, but actually can do it. That built the assessments. And then we tested them on that same group of folks. And we actually had some, I guess, you know, I won't say who, but we had one of our executives who took the assessment and she's like, I, I, I wouldn't even pass. Like I can't even pass these assessments, you know? So we just, we do want to make sure though, that, That doesn't mean that that they're so hard that nobody can get the job, right? That's not what our intent was. But our intent, again, is to really, you can't just say you can do the job. You're going to have to demonstrate that you can do the job. And then you can be a part of of the elite DHS cybersecurity service. So Angie, you just touched on this, communicating with the CIO community, CISOs, I know OPM played a role in the development process of this. Can you talk about how, a little bit more about how you solicited feedback from different constituencies along the way as you developed this and what maybe advice they had and what that process was like? Because I got to imagine that also contributed to the amount of time that it took to stand something like this up. Yeah, it sure did. And I do remember going with Travis and East um, and Aaron one time out to NSA as an example. And it was kind of a cool thing whenever, you know, whenever like they were kind of the leader in this space. Right. But one of the things that they said to us is, hey, when you guys are done with this, like this would be really nice for us to be able to to adopt and stuff. So, you know, DOD was another one that we would have like starts and stops with DOD and trying to get the kind of information because some of the legislation actually ties us to DOD, especially when it comes to compensation. We had conversations, as you said, with OPM throughout. I will say probably the biggest thing that is in some ways blowing people's mind is perhaps how far we went with the compensation. And when I say, I don't mean as in the amount of money we're paying, 
but the amount of time and effort we put into making sure that we had market surveys done. And we use those market surveys to do what's called market sensitive pay. And to the best of my knowledge, we're the kind of the first ones to do that or very few who have ever done this in the federal government. Those are just some things that, you know, that we worked with. And I would say for OPM, it was hard to wrap their minds around how far away from Title V that we went. But ultimately, at the end of the day, everyone concurred on it, including OMB, who really saw us as being a leader in all of this. And I would say Congress believed in us, too, because we briefed them. What would you say, guys? Every every three months, every six months, we've been up on the Hill briefing them. They really helped fund us in some, such a way that we were able to like do some of the state-of-the-art things that we've done. So I think it just really speaks to the fact that they felt like we were not only doing our homework, but we could actually prove prove that we were listening to the different feedback that we were getting to actually build our system. Yeah, Angie, I think you're referring to maybe trends and, and conversations that a lot of agencies are having right now as they discuss the whole movement toward assessments. Erin, please chime in here. The one thing that I always think of was Travis and I went up on the Hill just for a a staff conversation. And we're sitting on one side of the table, the staffers are sitting on the other. And, you know, and we thanked them for, you know, the seed money that they gave us because that made such a huge difference early on in in getting us on our way. And then they looked at each other because we had both... I think the minority and the majority appropriators staffs in the room. And they were like, yeah, we gave you more money. We're like, uh, no. And then they were going back and forth and like, oh, well, we intended to, but it must've gotten taken out along the way. See, I know Travis remembers that conversation. We said, but if you do have more money for us, we're more than happy to take it and we will continue to put it to good use. (laughs) But that was one of the conversations that I remember. And then just the ongoing quiet one-on-ones not just with CISA and CIO, but with the rest of the DHS components, the Coast Guard, TSA, ICE, CIS, INA. It was not only the large organizations at DHS, but the small organizations and their commitment, their willingness to commit their subject matter experts to every one of those assessment design sessions that we had and the feedback that we got. We could not have done this without the commitment from those subject matter experts across the department. And I think that that really goes a long way when you start looking at the assessments that we have. So the CTMS positions, they're primarily focused within CISA and the DHS CIO shop. I think you're targeting around 150 positions to start. What are your expectations with those positions and the initial launch of CTMS? So with the initial launch, we're focused on 150 priority positions across those two organizations, so CISA and the DHS CIO's office. But we are very quickly looking at how this system will likely be expanded and positions that are either similar in our CIO community across components or associated with some of our other frontline cyber missions at agencies or components other than CISA will make sense for expansion too. I would say one of the things that we're very cognizant of is as we've mentioned, this is new. It is a new way of thinking about recruiting and retaining talent. It's a new sort of employment arrangement for folks who might be familiar with being a federal employee previously. And so our goal is to start small, build on successes, and then really accelerate beyond that 150 to other priority roles that we have at the department. Got it. Yeah, Angie, 
please feel free to, to chime in here. One of the things that I think is really cool about this is as the applications are ro- rolling in and while we might have close to a thousand, give or take a few, and we're, we're still sif- sifting through to find out, you know, are those thousand someone who applied for every level, right? From entry to executive, is it like discrete thousand people or is it a combination? So it's not a discrete 1000. That's what we're trying to get at. But nonetheless, we have a lot of people who are interested in this. And so I've got a twofold thing. One is, is that CISA and the CIO had in their mind, like what their priority mission was, what it is that they're really looking for out of this 150 that we just put a marker on the wall. It was basically based on what do we think we can handle right out of the gate, right? Because you don't want to like be trying to hire thousands of people and not get it right. So we purposely are taking a baby step on this. But one of the things that that leadership is saying, and I love this, is they're like, oh, well, what if I get somebody who's incredibly talented in X and I hadn't even thought about that? You know, this is going to be so cool because now I can hire them because it's not tied to a position and it's not tied to a billet, right? It's tied to what is it that you need today in order to accomplish your mission and wow, look at all this talent out here who's not only applied, they've passed our assessments. If you want to change your mind tomorrow and you want to hire somebody that's a different new priority for you, go for it. So we really love that we have the ability to do that because, again, we're not putting out a GS 2210-15. We're instead saying we need somebody with network forensics background might have a degree in psychology, but not really necessary. And maybe you've worked in this area and done these kinds of things. And then lo and behold, we get somebody that has even different or better talent, we can hire them. So that I think is what sets us apart, makes us more private sector-like, and actually will help leadership be able to fill the positions that they're looking for. Once we kind of see like, what's the appetite that's out there for, for the nation and like understanding CTMS and applying for it, then we really envision ourselves getting very targeted. Like, you know, what associations or what different kinds of groups can we go to? How about the universities or the, the different contests and things like that that are out there? How do we target our focus toward them, market toward them and get the kind of talent that we're looking for to come in and apply? So it's kind of twofold, but I would say right now, Travis and I just talked about this this morning. I would say for right now, we're in that, hey, this is really incredibly new and exciting. Who all thinks that as well? And getting their applications in and kind of sifting through them. Got it. You're essentially trying to find, you know, those who are seriously interested in these jobs and aren't maybe just applying because it's a new thing that they heard about and they can apply to, you know, all of them, like you said. Is there, you know, any specific place that you would want to make sure that people go to to get more information and and hear about kind of your next steps with this? Yeah, so probably the easiest place to direct folks is if they go to dhs.gov slash cybersecurity service, they can sort of get the latest news from the department about this effort. And that also contains a link to our application portal, which has a more complicated web address. So I tend to give the address that I that I mentioned. And that's where we're posting all the latest news and it allows people to access. There's some sort of quick reference information about what does it mean to apply to be in the cybersecurity service? What do you need to sort of know as an applicant to be ready? And then that also orients folks to some of the critical content on our application portal. So I like to say to the team, and and I think we've achieved this, you don't need to know anything about the federal government to effectively apply for these jobs. So that includes reviewing the material and then Once people sort of click apply and start to move through our process, we've taken great pains to make that straightforward as well. 
So there shouldn't be a ton of questions that folks are asked about what they're interested in at the department or what their experience has been in their career or in their courses of study that won't seem straightforward to them. So at the beginning of our conversation, I believe it was Aaron who mentioned that you're at the point where CTMS is launched, it's live, you're starting to accept applications and you've accomplished a lot, but you still have, you know, some things to to finish up with the launch of the new cyber talent management system. What are the next steps for CTMS and what are maybe some of those things that you still have left to do on, on the to-do list here? So I, I think our immediate next step is sort of working through interacting with all these applicants, seeing those that are successful in our assessment processes and seeing how they sort of stack up against what we thought were our initial hiring priorities. Simultaneously, we're engaging in a series of meetings with all of our folks that are actually doing these initial hires to make sure that we really understand their requirements, we understand the unique aspects of their mission, so that when we do get to the point of them doing some interviews and making some selections, that we're meeting the mark with the talent that they're seeing. I think, you know, it's the end of the calendar year. It's also a time when a lot of changes happen for sort of the federal workforce writ large, right? So we look at things like aggregate pay increases that are happening across government, While we're sort of doing our own thing over here when it comes to compensation, some of those things have ripple effects for um, changes to what compensation, et cetera, might look like in the cybersecurity service. So we're keeping an eye on those developments in the next month, month or so as well. Erin, anything else you might want to add to that? Just getting busy as we get all of these folks interviewed and get their interviews scheduled because that's going to be a good size workload as we work our way through that whole assessment process, because those assessments are not just, you know, taking a test online, but there's also interviews, whether it's a structured interview or a technical interview that that individual, those individuals are going to have to accomplish and then getting those scored so that we really can identify those next candidates. So those are some of the things that we've got coming up over the next several weeks and several months. So I wanted to make sure I got this question in because I know this is, I think, something that Angie has been asked about in the past. And and Travis, you alluded to this in looking at past studies on civil service reform, I guess, if you want to call it that. And you mentioned how a lot of times the recommendations in those studies don't really go anywhere. So I guess I just wonder for, for any or, you know, each of you, what this process has taught you about that prospect of modernizing the civil service, whether it's maybe advice that you would have for somebody that might be looking into this themselves, or, you know, just any other insights that you have learned along the way about really overhauling a pay and classification system like you have done. I'll start with this, and then I would love to hear what Aaron and Travis have to say, but I think for me, like the the biggest thing out of the gate was a couple of things. One is that having a study or a report is nice, but actually having the guts to implement it is what really makes things a reality, right? We didn't shy away from what was hard. We took it head on. For me personally, I believed in what we were doing. I believed in the team. I tried to balance, hopefully they found it too, between really being super interested and not appearing like I was micromanaging, right? Like, cause there's this fine line between like being super interested, knowing every single thing. So speaking from a, from a leadership standpoint, for me, it's, if you're going to have a vision, 
then surround yourself with people who can actually make that vision become a reality. Otherwise, it's just a pipe dream, right? Otherwise, it just looks good on paper, but it doesn't become a reality. So being able to have like Travis and Isa and Aaron and Monica and Laura, you know, the, the list goes on and on of all the people, Salisa, of all the folks that were able to be a part of this. It is through them sticking to it and making sure that every day, you know, that they cracked open these different things, but that I was always there. I hope I was always there to provide them the support or to say, I hear you, but this is still an area in which we got to pursue because we don't want to give up on that particular principle. That's a key and critical principle that we're trying to drive after, even though it's hard, let's make sure that, that we go in that direction anyhow. So I would say really for, I'll just speak to the leaders that are out there again, believe in what you're doing and like, don't settle for something less just because it's hard and then hire or have really, really good people that are on your team and let them do their job. Let them blossom and, and become who they are going to become throughout this process as well. So that's what I think it really takes because I've been doing this for 40 years. You know, I'm going to retire at the end of the year in December. And this is to me like, what's it called? The coup de croix of my, you know, of my career is to see like things that are like so innovative, actually be able to be accomplished in the federal government. So it is it is possible. I think you just have to believe and stick to it. Erin, anything to add here? To me, one of the things is recognizing that it's going to take a while to build the team that gets this done and that it's not going to be just anybody that you can hire. You're going to have to hire folks that believe in a startup. And that was some conversations that Travis and I had had early on as we were doing a, a number of interviews is there were folks that found this project intellectually challenging and were excited for us and wanted to see us succeed. But one of the challenges was they were like, I've done startups before. I've told myself I would never do a startup again. And that's what you're doing. So you've got to get folks that are willing to, to take that risk and do it. But you also have to have folks who are willing to challenge each other with information and questions and recognize that those challenges and those discussions can be very uncomfortable inside the team, but I think they're very good because they help the team move forward and they move the project forward. I think those are some things that, that you have to recognize and remember and realize the importance of as you work your way through this. Yeah, and I would add, echoing what Angie said, I mean, it takes sort of bold leadership to create a space where you can have a project like this, right? So you have to have leaders who are committed to really solving the problem in terms of delivering results as soon as possible. Because when it comes to federal HR, when it comes to a lot of these complex bureaucratic issues that people call for innovation related to quite frequently, there's not a quick win to be had, right? We've sort of done as many quick wins as we can. In some cases, you have to do a wholesale redesign to get more meaningful results. And I would say that that need for leadership commitment is related to something that you face on a project like this every day, which is this tension between we live in a pretty immediate world, right? People are expecting results to be delivered on certain timelines. The timelines of our politics influence that too. People are looking for things to be done. But this type of project is not about what happens in the next six months, 12 months. It's really, to Angie's point, about what's going to happen at DHS in cybersecurity 
for the next 15 years, 20 years, right? And so thinking on that time horizon and being bold about you know the way you do business each day, it can be challenging, but I think that's where the meaningful change happens. And I would just add connected to that, that I'm not sure anyone needs to write another study about how the civil service should be reformed. There's some pretty darn good ones. <laughs> some of my favorites are from the 80s, right? But when you look at those studies, what you see is that studying the problem is one thing, actually making the meaningful change to how you do business each day is the hard part. So if someone wants to do a study in this space, they should do it about how do you build a team that can actually implement your civil service reform versus studying the problem again. Oh, I love this statement. It's kind of like, I think that we've admired the problem for long enough, right? And to Travis's point, there is as many studies as I've been in HR, they're out there and they all fundamentally say the same thing. And I've been called up to testify year after year. Angie, what do you think we should do to reform? And then the minute you say what you think needs to be done, and that includes my Chico colleagues, and this goes where, um, you know, administration after administration, I'm always asked this, what can we do? The fellow Chicos, we keep saying the same thing, but nobody, nobody just does it. Like, just do it, as the Nike commercial would say. And so I think for us, you know, a lot of people said, well, what if you fail? Well, what if you get litigated? Well, what if? But what if? But what if we succeed? Like, how cool is that? What if we succeed? And so I think that that's really always been our mindset. It's like, no, you know, if things are going to go wrong, we'll figure out how to mitigate it. All the risk. We'll figure out the best way to do it. We'll build this plane as we're flying. And as Aaron said, there's so many things more left to do, but but we're not afraid of that either, right? And And if we have to make adjustments along the way, we'll make adjustments. Like, it's okay. It's just that we actually jumped off the cliff, I guess. And we said, you know what? Those wings are going to appear. We believe those wings are going to appear. And we're going to start flapping like crazy because we're not going to crash and burn. And so, and we didn't. And so I, I think ultimately that is really the biggest lesson of all is like, if go for it. Like it, it's going to be okay. You're going to be able to actually make something, do some good for the federal government. You know, you all got an authority to do this kind of work and buy in from Congress and all the stakeholders that you talked about, which, you know, maybe not everyone else has at this point. And so I guess I just wonder if along the way in this process, I mean, did you see what you were doing as essentially or or maybe a um, proof of concept for what others in government might be able to do? And, and how were you thinking about that? Absolutely. And so did OMB. I mean, I think they always believed this as well, that this was going to be the prototype, if you will, for for actual federal uh, federal civil service reform. So there is a lot of folks that, that believe that by us stepping out there, that we've created at least the framework. We've been very clear of all of my you know federal partners that I've talked to, no matter where where I've been asked to speak on this. They always ask me, well, will you give us what you did? Certainly. It's not proprietary. We'll give you everything that we've done. However, please understand two things. One, you're going to need the legislation that we have, which means that Congress is going to need to extend Title VI to the other federal agencies. We're not opposed to that at all either. And number two, you're going to have to do some really hard work, you know, because like we said, this was built by and for DHS. So 
That's a really key, important point. The assessments that we built, the market surveys that we did, like everything that we did was built around DHS's specific mission when it comes to cybersecurity. So we'll hand over everything. We will help them be as successful as they want, as they uh, can possibly be. But make no mistake about it, they're going to have to put the effort that we put into this. It won't take them six years, right? Because we've figured out a lot of things. But it wouldn't surprise me if it takes them a good three years to really figure out what it is that they want to do. I would love to see this expand beyond cybersecurity and hit the rest of the positions within DHS. I think that that would be a really incredible thing for us because now that we have the framework already mapped out or to see this you know, expand across the federal government and because DHS, I think, is a leader in the cybersecurity space. And so if there's a way for us to contribute to that uh, mission across the federal government through CTMS, I think that that would be a wonderful thing as well. The only thing I would think to add, and basically in response to the last question, is that sure. we always sort of viewed this project as not just about solving the cybersecurity talent problem at DHS, but to the extent that we made progress on issues that agencies were, were struggling with in other mission spaces, that we would try and create a template for how you can fix those problems. So I like to think of our rulemaking, which was you know, a gargantuan effort to produce as many pieces of that can sort of be looked at as a model for how different aspects of HR can be changed and not just for cyber and not just for DHS. Travis Holdley, the Director of Innovation for the DHS Cyber Talent Management System, with Angie Bailey, Chief Human Capital Officer at the Homeland Security Department, speaking with Federal News Network's Nicola Grisco. You also heard from Aaron Hayes, Director of Operations for CTMS. There's much more to the interview here in its entirety at federalnewsnetwork.com. Hello, and welcome to the Lessons in Leadership podcast. I am your host, Shane Canfield, CEO of WEPA. Today, I'm thrilled to be joined by Vice Admiral Cutler Dawson. Cutler has had an incredible career serving our country for 35 years in the Navy, where he attained the rank of Vice Admiral. During his service, he had numerous assignments afloat and ashore, including Commander, Second Fleet, Striking Fleet Atlantic, and in Washington at the Pentagon and on Capitol Hill, where he was the Navy's Chief of Legislative Affairs. Immediately following his retirement from active duty in 2004, he became the president and CEO of Navy Federal Credit Union, the world's largest credit union, where he served for 14 years. Under his leadership, Navy Federal grew from 2 million to 8 million members. Phenomenal. Cutler, welcome and thanks for joining me. Thank you, Shane. You've had a fascinating career across both military and the private sector. Can you tell us a little bit more about your background and your professional journey? Well, I started out at the Naval Academy where I graduated in 1970. And then, as you mentioned, spent 35 years in the Navy um, with uh, six actual actual uh, afloat commands. Uh, the first one was when I was 27 years old. Uh, I didn't know enough to be scared of anything. And it was uh, probably one of the highlights of my career. Um, and then after I retired, after 35 years, I went to uh, work at Navy Federal Credit Union as the CEO, where I spent my next 14 years. Um, I'm, I'm currently retired and enjoying life. And um, it's been a great run for me. How would you describe your leadership style? And how's that developed over the years? My style has been quite con consistent. Um, I believe, and I've learned this in the Navy, that you have to go to the deck plates 
uh, to see what is going on. And you have to learn what your people do and how they do it so you can help them to be better at it and more efficient and more productive. Um, it's um, something that you need to do all the time. Um, I remember I used to tell folks that um, you don't want to retreat to your cabin. And what I mean by that is um, the longer you're in a position, the less you think you have to get out and about. But that should be the opposite. You should get out and about more because people change, situations change, and you've got to figure out a way to get to them and find out what they're doing and where, what you can do to help them. Uh, I, we'll talk a little bit more about your book, but I read it. Um, From Sea to the C-Suite, fantastic read. You talk about the deck plates in that um, as well. I would encourage everyone to get a copy of this and read some more detail about going to the deck plates. Cutler, who was the most impactful leader in your life and what quality did you admire about them? I had numerous while I was in the Navy, but uh, the quality that, that I enjoyed the most was the leaders that got to know me as an individual and that they cared about me. And I could tell that they cared about me. And they were not only my leaders, but they were my mentors. And um, I remember um, one particular one, Bill Schiffer, when I had my first assignment at the Pentagon, um, I would go in to see him with my problem of the day. And I knew that he had numerous problems of his own, but he would stop and he would focus on me and he would make me feel like I was the most important person in his world. Um, and I, I tried to do that um, throughout my career, but really it's about caring for your people. Cutler, in reading your book, there was a quote you used that you used to inspire those people that work for you. And it really got my attention and it was, it was, you are the captain of your own ship. I wonder if you can talk a little bit about what that means and how it was useful to you and the leaders you were developing. Uh, absolutely. Um, what I mean by captain of your own ship, when you are the captain of a ship, sometimes you're in the middle of the ocean and you don't have anybody to turn to to make decisions. You don't have anybody to turn to ask, what should I do now? You have to be the captain of that ship. And I, I translated that um, into, let's say, Navy Federal's organization, where I would tell branch managers that I said, you are the captain of the ships of Navy Federal. You're the ones that are facing the, the members or customers, as others call them, every day. And you have to make decisions without a lot of guidance, in some cases, and without a lot of time. So be the captain of your own ship. Step up, uh, make decisions. Uh, do what you think is right, and you never can go wrong. I think that is so important. And you have to give your people a little bit of latitude to take some risk as well, because there is risk for them in doing that and risk to your organization. That's right. And, and I mentioned that I took command of my first ship uh, with five years in the Navy, and I was 27 years old. Well, my boss had 32 years in the Navy, and um, his, his guidance to me when I first met him was, Cutler, you do the right thing, and I'll back you up all the way. What a wonderful way to, to spend an assignment with, uh, with backup and, and guidance like that. What, what great, great advice. Uh, it's clear leadership is a topic you're passionate about. You wrote the book we mentioned before, um, From C to C Suite. Can you tell us a little bit about that project? 
Yes, when I was at Navy Federal, I would tell sea stories uh, as parables to get my point across. And um, folks would tell me, Cutler, we like your stories. It gives us a picture of what you're trying to tell us. Now, what else are they going to say? They work for me, but uh, uh, I took it as a compliment, and it was. And my wife encouraged me to write a book, and I needed a co-author to help me. And I found a lady named Taylor Keelan, who was the perfect, perfect co-author. She turned in my stories into wonderful chapters um, that I'm very proud of. Where can listeners find a copy? Well, you can get it on Amazon, uh, and you can also uh, get it on the Naval Institute website. Uh, And I might add that um, any proceeds from the book, Navy Federal uses uh, to give to charity. Fantastic. Cutler, thank you very much. Really enjoyed your time and your lessons and in leadership and sharing with us your life story. And and, uh, I've learned a lot both from talking to you today and reading your book. And thank you very much for your time. It's my pleasure. And I I would like to add one thing if I could, Shane. Um, During my assignments in Washington, D.C., I gained the utmost respect for the civilians that work here every day. They're hardworking, they're dedicated, and they they have my eternal gratitude. Uh, I got to come and go from the Pentagon. They stayed every day and worked in Washington when I got to go out and um, enjoy being at sea. Perfect. Thank you. Yeah, WEPA serves civilian federal employees, but your comment is well taken because the interaction between the two is is continuous, it's nonstop, and it's critical. So uh, the career civil servants, as well as career military, uh, our country would not be where it is today without them. I totally agree. And, and I can tell you from the U.S. Navy standpoint, uh, we couldn't operate like we do without them being the backbone of what we do. Thank you very much for your time today, Cutler. And to everyone listening to Lessons in Leadership podcast, we'll see you next time. Looking to expand or move your company? Ohio has the talent you need to scale for growth. Ohio's central location, reliable infrastructure, and top-ranked business climate are here to help you succeed. Get to business. Visit successinohio.com today. Grab a 30-day free trial of Live by Live Plus, and you'll get unlimited skips, commercial-free music, and all of the podcasts and live streaming events you can handle. Visit livexlive.com slash podcast one to learn more and start your free trial.